0: And welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our divided times and how we navigate the very deep differences between us. Every episode, I speak to someone who has a public voice or platform or profile about their own values, the journey that they've been on, and what they have learned along the way. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Rowan Deacon, who is a very illustrious documentary filmmaker. She's best known for the multi-award winning Simon's Choice, and most recently, Jimmy Savile, A Very British Horror Story, which was in the top 10 globally on Netflix. We spoke about what drew her to documentaries, the power of storytelling about real life, and the ethical quandaries that that throws up, and how you care for and make sure you treat well the real people whose stories you're telling. There's some reflections from me at the end as usual. I hope you enjoy listening. Rowan Deacon, on this beautiful morning in Camberwell, I'm going to ask you something that no one really should have to answer <laughs> this early in the morning, uh, which is a big, hefty question that's trying to get to some of your deepest values. To skip the small talk and the chit chat, I'm going to ask you what is sacred to you. And by that, I mean deep values and principles that you're trying to live by, things that if someone offered you might to give up, you'd feel a bit offended. Um, but honestly i don't think anyone really knows and you can take it in any direction you like just tell me what bubbled up for you as you've been reflecting it's not a question that
1: i've been asked before and uh the uh, and i i definitely found it difficult to think of one thing that i could kind of one value or principle that i could uh define myself by um so but where so where i got to was I, well, I sort of started with friendship, but, but, but as something that's sacred to me. But I don't mean just friendship in the um, sense of long friendships, you know, uh, or, or, or family friendships, which are obviously important. But also a kind of the, the friendships that you build in through, through work, through the creative process. And those random friendships, those connections, I think. It, and then I got to connection and I realised that it was probably connection that was sacred to me. And the idea of bonding with people over things that you don't expect or ideas or um, jokes or um, missions or purposes. And, it could, and it's even little things like the way that you might talk to somebody, you know, on the bus. I think those things are really sacred to me. So other people, then I got, is it other people? <laughs> are other people sacred to me? <laughs> so I, I haven't gotten, and then I, I think, you know, it's probably connection. Some form of connection to other people is something that is um, incredibly important and meaningful and without which I would, and I don't mean just being friends, I mean connecting. Do, do you know what I mean? Not small talk, Um and that's the thing that I think that is so important to me, that if it was taken away,
0: it, life would have no meaning. Yeah. I want you to just paint me a little word picture of young Rowan. What was her world? And particularly, were there any big ideas in there? Polit- political, philosophical, religious, things that shaped you?
1: Yeah, so my uh, my parents were both... Um, sort of quite radical socialists. Um, they had been part of the political student movement in 68. And so when me and my brother were born in the 70s, they were very politically motivated. They, were, um, they had moved from London to Devon to uh, bring socialism to the provinces, uh, which was an audacious, <laughs> which was an audacious task. And so me and my brother were born in just outside Plymouth and grew up in a small kind of naval, fairly conservative, fairly provincial town, village actually, um, with these kind of parents who weren't like anybody else's parents in, you know, in that village at that time. So I think though, so they believe, you know, they were socialists, they believed in egalitarianism, they believed in the revolution Um, they, they were, you know, they were part of the anti-Nazi league. They were, they were, um, CND, uh, campaigners. I was, you know, I was taken to Greenham Common when I was six and it was only women who were allowed. They were, my mum was a feminist. So these were ideas that today are quite, uh, commonplace and certainly in South London, you know, and I think if I'd grown up in South London or Hackney or, you know, a Northern town, then I, I probably would have found a clan, but, we were completely weirdos <laughs> and so um and I think I was aware of that but I didn't ever rem- I don't recall it as a negative thing I don't ever recall it because they weren't ostracized um I think they were fairly kind of they were they're friendly people and then and they weren't radical in the sense that they were kind of crazy I mean they were academics so they had very thoughtful about their political beliefs and they were um you know not, uh, but it was always made clear to me that the, the the belief system of people that I was surrounded by, who were mostly, you know, Tory at that time, mostly C of E. I went to a, a Christian school. Um, mo- you know, this was the eighties. In a, uh, the, there were a lot of people who were making a lot of money um, through business. So, so, so all of those ideas. Um, and principles were different to the ones that my mum and dad believed in and so I was I suppose I was aware of that I i, I haven't quite worked out what effect that had but it was um it, it I definitely remember feeling different I definitely remember I remember there was um uh, a boy at school said to me oh because <laughs> my mum had short hair and didn't have a perm which in you know Plymouth in 1982 was I mean crazy <laughs> And she wore long dangly earrings. You can imagine, you know. And um and he said, Is your is your mum? He whispered it as if it was sort of something terrible. He said, Is your mum a women's liber? <gasps> and and I didn't quite know what to say. And I remember it being a real moment of like, this is I have to kind of balance my trying to be accepted in in a school where the idea of women's libbers was like, these are crazy people and my mum and dad's principles which are quite important and I kind of and I was starting to understand were important ideas and I, I and I can't remember whether I said yes or no I think to my shame I might have said no but I might have known that that was a transgression that I should have said yes but I think I said no in order to that he wouldn't I, I would fit in
0: yeah so,
1: so that's kind
0: of like the world. <laughs> yeah, and were they successful in bringing socialism to the provinces? <laughs> I think history can answer that question. <laughs> Plymouth is such a hotbed of <laughs>
1: revolutionary uh, fervour. Do you know what? The Green Party might be better there now than it did then. I, you know, I mean, no, they didn't, and their politics have uh, mellowed. I would say. I think they would probably, you know, if you ask them, they would probably say that, um, and they're probably right that political ideas um still influence people and have a uh have a through line I mean I think they still believe in the revolution and that it's coming um so it just takes a while right ah, <laughs> love it
0: and did you um feel share that political fervor did that become something that was part of your own set of values
1: um, no I don't think I did actually and I don't know how much of that was um I mean politically i've always been uh i've identified with left wing politics i've i've only ever voted labor i think um so and and a lot of that might just be because i have been um introduced to those um ideals uh of a welfare state and of principles around Equality and diversity, and the um, the dangers of a capitalist society. So I think that they influenced me in a in a, in a good way. But I didn't. I I I never. Uh, I never. I knew that I wasn't interested in going down that political road or that academic road. So so they influenced me in terms of um, my political leanings.
0: You didn't want to man the barricades.
1: <laughs> no. no, I didn't. And I think I probably, and it's partly a sort of teenage rebellion, you know, as I got older, I would challenge them. You know, I would challenge them on, or, or you know, I married someone who, make, who is a business person. And so that, you know, and I challenged them on the idea that people who are interested in entrepreneurialism or interested in making money aren't necessarily bad people. I think that I found that sort of fundamentalism or that extremism um i i bolted against that a bit and we still have arguments today so my so my rebellion was actually to sort of to question the um the fundament, the fundamental kind of extreme uh, tenets of socialism, which it had to be a revolution to get everybody equal, that I wasn't sure that that was going to work for everybody. I challenged them that it was a kind of middle-class privilege to even dream of that, um, which I'm sure is uh, just a sort of teenage rebellion thing. But I, I I, think I
0: often saw both sides, if that makes sense. which mm. seems not uh, insignificant uh, in what you later chose to do, but I'd love to know when did that vocation uh begin to develop maybe what's the first film that you remember seeing and feeling excited by
1: um so I think uh actually interestingly I was thinking about this because I was thinking because your question about um your what values or what kind of family or ideas that you're brought up in how might they influence the way that you then take your life they're sort of interesting because i've only ever thought about that on an emotional level i've never really thought about it on a kind of political or philosophical or values-based um uh framework um and it's interesting that i sort of chose television uh, and I rem- I do remember the first thing. So so my mum and dad weren't anti TV, but we were a big TV watching family. It wasn't like in some households where the TV is part of the culture of your of your world. It just wasn't. There were occasional things that we watched, but we but television was also almost they were academics. They were probably they were quite bookish. TV was they were probably a bit snobby about it. I, I, not outwardly, but maybe because they had bigger things to worry about. Um, I, you know, in terms of their thinking, television was probably just seen as just entertainment. And uh, maybe it was because of that that I found it intriguing. You know, when something, when something is sort of not there, it's more interesting. Anyway, I do remember the first thing that I watched that made me go, this is fascinating, I love it, was I think I was probably about 10. And there was a documentary that Michael Palin did, which is probably considered so kind of, you know, old- sort of hat now and almost colonial in its um, <laughs> in its premise. But he did this he did this series called 80 Days Around the World where he traveled, I don't know if you remember, and it I was do. it was wonderful. He traveled around, I think he did what Phileas Fogg is supposed to have done and traveled without aeroplanes around the world in 80 days. I think that was the challenge. Anyway, the point was that he was on an adventure and he met and connected with all of these kind of fascinating people. I mean, today it would just be a travelogue, but it felt quite radical to me in Plymouth in 1987. Actually, it was probably, I don't know when it came out, Late Aces? Um, and I remember watching it and thinking, first of all, this is amazing. This adventure that this man is doing is amazing. And then it took me like the whole series to realise, hang on, he's not doing it on his own. There's a there's people, because I think occasionally he'd reference the crew, like oh my god there's people whose job it is to film this man doing this adventure and I and I think it just um it just set off my imagination in terms of that that it there was even a job that you could do that would allow you to go on such such physical adventures but such kind of emotional adventures as well I
0: think and you were immediately drawn to when you realized it was someone behind the camera you were drawn to that rather than being in front of the camera
1: yeah, I think so. I think uh I think I I'm definitely not a performer or uh um I'm a I'm a show off through my ideas rather than myself. I'm not very good at <laughs> I'm not very good at that role at all. In fact, I'm terrible in front of the camera. So yeah, I think it was obvious I would always be writing. I would never be in the place, I would always be writing the plays at school. You know, I'd be the bossy director even when I was eight. So I I think i um, that's where I naturally gravitated towards. Yeah.
0: And you didn't take a traditional way in, right? You didn't go to film school. Tell me a bit about that.
1: Um, no, I didn't go to film school. I don't think I was even aware that such a thing existed because I, d- because I didn't know anybody who worked in television. I didn't know anybody who worked in, I don't think, in any creative uh, job. Because, like I say, my mum and dad were academics and... I don't think any of my friends but I I just didn't I think I didn't even know that that was an option (laughs) at that stage um so I um I went to university and did English and um that was and it wasn't until I was at university actually that I kind of put joined the dots of the fact that I had seen this television program and that there was a, a possible route to doing that as a as a career
0: then left university. How did you find yourself making documentaries?
1: I did English and was absolutely, uh, it sort of, what's the word? I fell in love with books and plays and stories. So, uh, I mean, I had them before I went to university. So I was um, enamored with storytelling and particularly dramatic storytelling, I was obsessed with plays. I, I just remember being transfixed by reading plays and imagining the voices saying the play. So so I knew that this, there was some sort of storytelling. And then when I was at university, I saw, um, I don't really know about documentaries. I'd known I'd seen things, but I didn't really know that such a genre existed. And I saw some films by a filmmaker called Brian Hill when I was at university. And he is an extraordinary documentary maker who makes films where he um, works with the poet Simon Armitage, and he had the um, he wrote songs for people who were, in this case, they were sort of alcoholics, and they were dealing with their alcoholism in different ways. And he wrote these kind of extraordinary. Uh, Simon Armitage, along with Brian Hill, asked them to talk about their issues through the mode of poem and song, which sounds something like something that which wouldn't work, but it was extraordinarily moving and creatively radical and i saw two of his documentaries when i was at university and i think it was then that i was like okay that's what i need to do i need to i need to find a way of working in that world and i think i um then just wrote to every single production company in london i got hold of a handbook and i just wrote sort of begging i mean it was really quite simple of like writing begging letters i wrote to brian hill a lot I did actually end up you working down yeah I wrote to, I wrote to everybody and got given a job and then in television it's a very kind of um sort of strange industry strange sort of um, cottage industry almost with lots of tiny little companies and you know fairly I mean there's lots of negative things about that because there's no structure and there's a lot of there's not much diversity I mean there were a lot of issues with the industry. But one of the things that's quite exciting and positive is that you can um, sort of find your way. Well, if you can find your way in, which I accept, accept is, is the challenge, then you can um, move around quite quickly. There's no, you know, you don't have to train to be at the bar or do seven years of architecture school. You know, it's, it's, it, it can be meritocratic, but I say that
0: within the boundaries of all of its issues with diversity. I want to ask you what feels like a very stupid question because I feel very naive about documentaries in general. It's honestly almost a brand new genre for me. I thought I must have watched some, but I realised as I was preparing for this that I, am, I have not been drawn to documentaries at all for reasons I cannot fully understand. I have now watched some of yours and that it has been quite transformative, actually. But what is a documentary? You know, what, what is, how would you describe the genre? What is it trying to do? Um, yeah, that's a good question.
1: I I think that, um, I don't think documentaries are that far away from, uh, drama and books and novels and plays in their purpose. I mean, I think the purpose of telling stories about our world is, um, for us to understand each other, ourselves, I mean, I think people, I mean, storytelling is just kind of a human instinct and it's, there are just different formats through which we tell stories. So some people write novels, some people write plays, some people write screenplays and make featured films in the sort of traditional sense, but they, and, and documentaries are just another way of telling stories. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It's just that um, you're working with a story that has really happened or is really happening. That's that's the only difference. But I think that dramatists would probably argue that their that the that the roots of their ideas for dramatic storytelling come from experiences, their own or other people's, or sometimes from real stories. So I think that most stories are based in uh, even when they're you know fictional are. Uh, have some basis in uh, the real world and um, human experience, I'd say. So I think documentary is just another way of um, telling stories about the lives we live, the people we are, the uh, the world we live in and the, um, the challenges of being human. I, I, don't, I don't think it's any more, I don't think it's that different from drama, really. I mean, the, the techniques are different, but I, I really don't see it as, I think there's a kind of old-fashioned idea about documentary, that which, which is that documentaries are a, a piece, that, that documentaries are there to, to change things, that they're political and that they're there to kind of raise awareness um, I, I don't, I mean, I think that there are films that do that, but I also think that there are dramas that do that. So, you know, you could, you know, there are great dramas that are very polemic, that are very political, that are very kind of campaign films. Um, and there are great documentaries, which aren't campaign films that aren't polemics. So I think that that's a misunderstanding of the form. I don't think that documentaries are just, I think there have been It was a phase probably in the sort of 70s and 80s, or maybe when documentaries weren't as popular as they are now, where they were seen as kind
0: of pieces of journalism put to film. I think that's what I, I think that's the baggage I was coming with, that they they sat closer to news than they did to stories. And I am generally a story-oriented person and do news because good citizens should rather than out of joy but I do stories out of joy you know so I felt like documentaries were for people who really liked picking up lots of facts to make them sound clever in the world and wasn't interested in that so yes. I wanted to yes. listen to stories and actually your films have really changed my mind about that
1: yeah I think No, but of course there are documentaries there are I suppose as well if you're yeah there are documentaries like if you think about things like Dispatches or Panorama or you know there are documentaries which are extended news pieces or that are investigative that those do exist but i think they're just a subsection of a bigger genre which has a lot more uh, diversity than just those news doc- i mean i've never made a a news or an investigative documentary and that would be a kind of um that would just be one section of this much more kind of diverse genre <laughs> i must feel like
0: some sort of documentary nerd uh, well, you are. That's the joy. I love a nerd. I love people who are passionate about the area, and then I get to learn all about it. Um, tell me, what is your philosophy of documentary? What What are the ingredients that, for you, make an amazing documentary? Oh, God. Um, so, for me,
1: I started off... So, for me, I have to be moved. I think, for me, my my preferred... what I think the greatest documentaries do is that they emotionally move you. I, I, I started actually, when I started in television, I started off in factual documentaries. So actually, you're, that's exactly what you're talking, you're talking about that difference. So I started making documentaries about um, historical, like they're called history docs, and they would be, you know, about, I don't know, I made a film about the history of Andalusia, or I made a film about the Iron Age. <laughs> and they were fascinating, but I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do, and I and it took me a while to go. Why is it? It was all very in the head. It was very. Um, it, they were like they were like writing essays, but doing it with film. I mean, there was creativity in that, and I could. And it took me, a, you know, a few years to go. What is the difference? Why am I watching these other films that would be about people and humans, and not uh, and going like I want to work in that, not these kind of much more um, scripted factual history programmes. And I realised it was because for me, it was the difference between a a book, which is a a factual book, and a novel. And I think I wanted to make documentaries which are more like novels, which explore um, complex human emotions and experiences. And so they're, I suppose for me, the documentaries I like making or the ones that I'm drawn to are very character-based. They're about people. And they're about, they're quite psychological. They're about... um, What kind of emotional, psychological, uh, um, what's at work in people's decision making and the behaviour and their actions. And, And I think that the combination of character, story and emotion is what draws me to making the sort of
0: films I make. And so break it down for me. What is the process from start to end? Do you find a person first? Do you find an idea and think, I need to find a person to illustrate this idea? What's usually the germ of a Roan Deacon film?
1: It depends. It differs. Sometimes uh, all of those things. And I don't think there is a sort of, I don't have a, I don't have a strategy. I'm actually um, mostly, I'd say sort of n- nine out of 10 times, a production company has, a, has a, an idea or a story or a contributor, a person who has something happening in their lives and they come to me. Um, and so i there's already a germ that doesn't come from me. I, I have done that once and I actually found, you know, I, am embarrassed to say I found it harder when the, when the, the germ of the idea came from me. I, I, I find it easier to have it planted in my brain and then go, okay, how are we going to make this? How are we going to make this into a film? Because an idea isn't a film. Um, and an idea isn't a story and they're often not films. They're sort of, they're just like, there's this, there's this idea. Uh, So, so it depends. So for example, um, uh, with, uh, Simon's choice. There was an idea from the channel actually that they wanted to explore the the sort of issue. I suppose there's sometimes an issue that's that's current in our times that we want to kind of find a way of exploring, um, and that was you know around the debate around assisted dying. But that wasn't a film. We had to go out and find people who would be our story. Does that make sense? And sometimes there's already a person like with with uh, and a, and that was and there's a difference between retrospective documentaries, which are stories that have already happened that you're retelling. Or observational documentaries, which are stories which we're we we do not know what's going to happen, but we know this person is going on a journey that is going to be interesting, it's going to make a story, if that makes sense. So um, so with Savile was sort of the other end of the scale, that's a story that had happened. There's a man who had, you know, been central to a terrible story. And the again, it was the broadcaster that said, we we are interested in in doing this, in doing this story, in telling this story. Um and so the process is then well, um, then you've then you've got to find your characters. I mean, essentially, you have to you have to cast it. You have to cast a film. So you're doing a combination of casting, finding your storytellers, and also I think for me, and I'm often doing this before before I even sort of. Ex- take on a film to make i'm working out what on earth its meaning is like why am i telling this story why are we telling this story what's its meaning because the film might be about something on the surface like it might be about i don't know like i made a film about soldiers in afghanistan and i suppose on the surface that was about soldiers on the front line i think you know actually it was about masculinity i think it was about um comradeship so you're sort of trying to explore what the film's about something on the surface but it's always about something at its heart do you know what I mean and so I think for me the structural necessity is oh we need some storytellers who will um who want to do this will engage the audience and we need a story and we need to find a way of telling this story in a way that's going to engage an audience and compel them to watch. Because that's one of the things I think is really important about documentaries is that I think you, it's interesting that your idea about them has come from this sense that they're a bit homeworky. <laughs> that they're like, what we should do if we're kind of, you know, feeling like we should do something rather than watching, you know, Selling Sunset, or we should do some homework and watch a documentary. And It's I, like
0: kale versus cupcakes.
1: Exactly. I just think that documentaries should be more like, no, not like cupcakes. Like Pale something that's delicious cupcakes. and good for you. <laughs> yeah.
0: I do actually quite like it. Yeah, I,
1: but anyway, you asked me about what the pr- process was. That's kind of, I guess, a bit of that yeah.
0: process. And you mentioned casting. And I've re- I, in, this, in the process of preparing for this, i realised that's another thing that has put me off documentaries in that I have an extraordinarily overdeveloped pastoral sense in that often... If I'm watching someone who I know is a real person in a film or piece of television that I have accidentally stumbled across, I spend most of the time worrying about them. Are they okay? Are they being taken advantage of? What is the repercussions for the fact they've just said that on film? Sometimes even go check social media to see like what level of trolling they got. Mm. And then I think, I can't be responsible for that person's (laughs) well-being. I need to let them go. So I have quite a strong... And I think part of it is that I worked in television briefly. And, you know, I'm a words person. As anyone who's listened to this podcast, no, I was just very bad at it. Um, but uh, the the producers that I worked with were decent people, but they all had stories of basically mistreating contributors, trying to get them to say the thing you need them to say for the sake of your film, even if that's not what they wanted to say or they necessarily thought when they showed up. You've basically got your script. You need someone to say, yes, yay to this thing or boo to this thing or he was evil or she was great or whatever it was. And just rerunning the interview and asking it nine different ways until you get them to say the thing that you want them to say. And I don't know whether it was a particularly bad moment in television or they had happened to have bad work experience, but my overriding impression was of a slightly ruthless culture around contributors now, I know that that is not your approach. How do you go about making sure that people whose stories you're telling are d- doing that ethically, I guess, in line with your values?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really, gosh, that's so interesting to hear. I do, I, do, I think that that is, um, I mean, that's basically just bad documentary making. I'm so, uh, but I think that that um, probably does, that probably does exist in... Um, faster turnover, whereby, I mean, there's like pressure on time and money and budgets. I always think that when you watch films that have been, and I wouldn't even describe them as films. I mean, I suppose that would be for... Programs that I think we sometimes call constructed reality now, where where you ask people to go and experience a thing that they wouldn't ordinarily experience, so you're producing a situation for them normally to kind of create conflict. There's, there was a kind of fashion for those sorts of films in on television for the last sort of twenty years, I suppose, or or you know the kind of Love Island or you know contestanty type of contributor um i don't doubt that there is uh, a structure whereby people have a script where they have cast someone in their head and they just need the person to then match the script um i, I just don't think those films are very interesting or they're sort of they are the cupcake television um and i don't think that they're interesting <sighs> they're entertaining uh but they're fairly 2d and um I think that they don't get to the nuance and complexity of human beings, but I mean, I don't even think they're trying to. Um, in terms of contributor care, no, I get I totally, you know, there's something, um, if if there's anything that keeps me awake in the process of making a film, it's my responsibility and the and the and the trust that I have built up with the people that I'm making it with that There is, and I think it's really useful in documentary that there is no contract with those people, there is no payment with those people, that you are asking people to take part in a film and you have to, at the very beginning understand completely why they're doing that you have to sort of find um you have to understand that they're not doing that to please you they're not doing it because they want to be famous you need to understand that there's a reason because if they're motivated to do that for a reason that's their own reason not my reason because my reason is i want to make a great film right i want to make a great film and i'm thinking this person is going to be great I don't want them to be doing it for that reason. And I think that the best relationships with contributors work when they also have a reason that's their own. Does that, does that make sense? So I think that you can sniff out very quickly any, and certainly, I, you know, when I was less experienced, I made films with people that I think, in retrospect, I realised that, they, that that they were doing it, they weren't sure why they were doing it. And that, the, and that often that led to people being kind of unhappy in the process and dropping out of the filmmaking process. And so I think I've learned that you sniff out very early on any sense of exploitation, that if I'm exploiting or persuaded, overly persuading, you know, if you're doing a lot of persuading, please take part in my film, um, that that relationship is just not equal I suppose that's that's it. You can kind of sense that. So, so I think that um, in terms of so it so what am I saying? It keeps me awake, and I think that that's really good. It it keeps me from. It becomes a kind of guiding light in the edit. In terms of, I have to. Sh- I always obviously show the films to people before I sh- become public, and that viewing is very important because it's the one where is the one which is always most nerve wracking where the people who you've made the film about get to judge whether you have represented them in a way that's true and it's not always the truth because what's that's crazy you know but it's there's a truth that you found um, and that they recognize themselves I think that you have to have a part of you that you don't have where you're like I I am have to accept that these people are making their own decisions You know, so they're grown ups and they're not vulnerable. And, you know, it's different if you're working with people who have kind of um, mental health issues or their children. I think then there's a different set of protocols or or they're in hospital being operated on. You know, there are lots of different kind of. But if they are adults, then you have to accept that they are making their own decisions and that you're not responsible 100 percent. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do it. The other thing I think I'm conscious of and that I do make clear to people is that I am there as a filmmaker, as a journalist. I'm not there as a friend, as a therapist, because I think there's an interesting exchange that goes on in filmmaking where people have asked questions from someone who's outside of their world. And hopefully, hopefully if that's, that works, that relationship and that that, that interview works, they um, are honest with you at, And therefore you get something interesting. Mm. Um, And I think that that can, and I think that um, I am aware that that structure can be in itself exploitative because maybe people had never been asked those questions before. I don't know, you know, and now they're doing it and the purpose that they're doing it is not therapeutic because I'm not a therapist and this isn't isn't just serving their growth or their self-learning. It's to make a program for other people. It's for the audience. It's not for them. Does that make sense? So, so I think that I'm clear with people that I'm there as a as a journalist. Yeah. I mean, not that I have to say that, but that if there's ever a sense that that,
0: um, you know, that that is misunderstood, because it is. I can totally see why that happens, and sometimes it happens in the podcast. I I I think whenever we ask someone to tell their own story and we listen deeply. Something almost sacred happens, right? There is, there is some, there is power in that. And some people are very used to it. But for a lot of people, the dignifying of being asked to self-reflect and tell your own story can feel like a gift and can feel like very deep friendship, right? Mm. So I can imagine that that's very helpful to have those boundaries of like, yes, this is possibly a very deep emotional intense experience, but let's remember that it is primarily for the film to just kind of keep it contained
1: yeah I think so i mean they, they those often become friendships beyond the the film but in the process of making the film i think the other thing to answer your question about contributor care and you know exploitation, i think i'm constantly uh reminded by you know engaging with people whose stories I'm telling that they uh that there is dignity is an interesting word that there is dignity and um And a sort of sense of affirmation and pleasure that that can be taken in sharing our stories. So I think that the exploitative framework isn't a helpful one to go in with. And I'm also, I also, when I worry about that, when I worry halfway through a film, oh my goodness, you know, have I, have I treated this person fairly in the film? I don't mean outside of the film. That, that framework is always in place for treating people with kind of respect and sort of dignity around the process of filmmaking Um, But in terms of how I've represented them in the film, I I think I know that the film sounds really, oh my God, this sounds so so, sort of pretentious in a way, but the film, the film ends up being the sort of gift back. Do do you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and mostly, I I would say 99% people are really pleased with the Um, with the story being told in a elevated and dignified way Does, does that make sense and sometimes and it's not even always easy sometimes they're showing their worst sides and sometimes they're showing vulnerability and sometimes they're showing complicated um sometimes they're revealing complicated um motivations and uh you know shameful behavior but I think that as long as the films are compassionate and I think that most of mine are then um, that engagement in that process for people is um, is um, ultimately kind of fulfilling and interesting and worthwhile. Does yeah. that make sense? So yeah, it's it not a negative reason. thing in its in its final
0: product. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to this idea uh, of truth. And you said something fascinating to me in a previous conversation. You said you'd uh, early on in your career you'd film someone who you didn't particularly like. And you found yourself in the edit, almost with a temptation to show that, to, to edit, to show them as you saw them, their worst side. And you said, you can't do that in the edit because the film will fight you. Which was just a line that has really stayed with me. Like that's, there is there is a truth that if you were trying to impose a truth on the material that you've got, the film will fight you. And it, it, it felt like you almost felt, that there was something almost mystical or um, deeply philosophical about that process of putting your material together and how you represent people. Yeah, can you unpack that a bit more? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. And what I mean by that is that you know you were talking earlier about how that you that you can um, you know I, you could interview someone and then utterly misrepresent them. You you could the edit is an incredibly kind of powerful tool where you can. Uh, if it's convenient to your storytelling, you can make people uh, not you 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 can misrepresent them basically by twi- moving their words around, essentially, or, or, or sort of knocking off some of the nuances, um, simplifying them, and. Uh, if I've ever been asked to do that, because sometimes, because the process of filmmaking isn't like uh, you have a lot of people that are involved in the film that come in and kind of view and say, oh, you know, I think the story would work better if so-and-so did this or if so-and-so said this. And I think that where, what I mean by the film fighting itself is that if you start to misrepresent people, their motivations, what they're really saying to you, you smell it in the edit. It, it, it fights itself because it doesn't feel authentic. I, I, I really, believe, I really believe that that you, you, in the process of sources trying to take what people have said and and what how and how they've behaved and the actions that they've done, and to weave it into a story, which is actually a process of condensing. It's not. It's not a process of of misrepresenting. It's a process of sculpting and really condensing because. These stories are huge, maybe chronologically, maybe emotionally, and you're trying to put it into 60 minutes or 90 minutes. And in that process of condensement, you have to find something that is true to the hours of things that they've said. Otherwise, it doesn't feel real. And I've done it because I've been asked to sort of make someone a bit more like this. And then it just, it's a touch thing, I suppose. You're just, um, you, you just, you just feel that they're not um that they're not people anymore they're voice pieces for a story rather than people. Does that make sense yeah. and I think that the engagement that we have with documentaries is often through the characters that are telling it, and they have to feel that they're authentic to what they're saying rather than just um voice pieces to a story that the director wants to tell so often you go in and think that someone's one thing and they turn out to be something else and the job of the filmmaker is to then make sure that the film represents who they really are or what the story really is
0: yeah you mentioned that you don't make or particularly interested in campaign films and it is clear why from all the things you've said but you have made a film called Time's choice and about euthanasia which i've been reading all the reviews and It's funny how surprised people are that you didn't make a campaign film. You know, you can read the reviewers coming to the film, hoping that you are going to affirm their position on this, realising that you're not going to do that, and then feeling very moved and, I think, enriched by watching it. How much, when you go into a film like that, are you thinking society needs to know more about this or needs to think through this issue how much is i need to know more and think through this issue and what's the kind of relationship as you navigate something as ethically knotty and painful as someone's decision to go to dignitas to end their life
1: um yeah i think with simon's choice um i w- w- we and me and the production company and the bbc um set out to from the very outset, try and make a film that was not a campaign film now partly that was the, the partly that was a BBC thing
0: yeah they're not allowed
1: they're not allowed um but actually it also set up set us up with a really really interesting challenge because I think that um, as you can imagine, people who are going to use um, assisted dying clinics are often fairly uh, polemical in believing that it's the right thing to do, um, and we know that this is a contentious issue in society. So w- we set out trying to find a way of representing all views, p- partly because of the BBC need for impartiality, but actually I think it went beyond that because I think that it, I think that well, what we did is we started meeting people with hundreds of people. We met hundreds of people who were in the process of going to an, a, a clinic and um and I suppose, yeah, we started with a framework that we we wanted the film to, in a complex way, show all sides of this debate. so I think, in terms of where I started out, I probably started out with a fairly kind of knee jerk uh liberal idea that of course, people should go to a clinic to if they want to. I think that was probably how I started out in it um, m- m- What complicated that, and why I think um the film is interesting? Mm-hmm is that um, our, we, I set out to find somebody who would challenge my beliefs. Do, do you know what I mean? If that was my starting point, then I wasn't interested in making a film about somebody who was like, yeah, and it's fine, I'm going to do that. And, and the question was, how How are we going to do that? So, you know, the quick way of making that film would be to find someone who's going to a clinic and then find someone who disagrees with it. But I, I, we wanted to we wanted to find a story. And so we, as we started talking to people, and I actually spoke to a, actually early on. I spoke to a friend whose dad had gone, and started to understand my friend's position about how he felt very, very complicated about his dad's decision, very uh, ambivalent. And um, we started listening to the other people in in families, and started listening to children and partners and friends and realised that actually the complicated nature of this story isn't about people, who, one person who holds one view and one person who holds another. It's actually about whose life, who who do we owe those decisions to about the end of our life? It became a question about individualism and individualism, what we owe to ourselves and what we owe to each other. And so in Debbie and Simon, and I think the reason why that film Uh, was successful was because Debbie and Simon were extraordinarily interesting and compassionate and people who were able to share quite complex and difficult ideas with me. But in Debbie and Simon, we found somebody who was absolutely committed, Simon, to not end his life um, in a palliative care situation where he was going to be vulnerable and unable to speak and unable to um, move because of his uh, disease and in uh debbie, someone who came from a she was brought up a Catholic so she had quite a strong value system around um uh how we die anyway, but also her daughter um had chloe had um died of cancer at eighteen, which is an unbelievable tragedy and uh, challenge for someone to go to go through it that had happened two years previously and I realized from speaking to Debbie that her understanding that her daughter Chloe had experienced palliative care and died naturally meant that she for obvious reasons felt very very uh uh found it very difficult to accept Simon's choice and so the film explored but they love each other they love each other very much and they want the best for each other and so the film is about it's actually not really about love about death it's about love it's about it's about how much we um how how, well, how do you find that balance of something that you need for yourself and something that you need for those people around you and and i think that what was interesting about it is that we had both um obviously it's a contentious political issue and we had both sides of the debate kind of um gunning for us i suppose from the beginning And we were having to, because they were saying, well, you should be making a campaign film that is saying one thing or the other. And what was interesting was in the end, both, both sides felt the film represented their views. And, and that was the challenge in that was to say that, was to show that through people's lived experiences, these political hot potato issues are often, they're not, they're not black and white. They're often more complicated and, um, and we can really only understand the complexity of them and the and the grays through people who are living that you, you know there is really a, and i suppose for me that's why documentary is so important because it gives the viewers an opportunity to live in those people's shoes for a while to to walk in their shoes and to sort of see things from a exactly not from a polemical politically worked out idea but just from how human beings experience the world rather than through Campaigners arguing that this is the right way of thinking because I d- I don't think that's how you change people's minds or complicate people's minds. So the idea for that film is that somebody who believes in assisted dying might come to it and be challenged by that, and that somebody who thinks that assisted dying is a wrong is a bad thing might come to it and have their ideas challenged. Does, does that make sense? It's, I mean, I've probably said kind I'm of fence sitting, but I think that the complexity and nuance of human beings is endless, and that. Sometimes the polemic, the polemical structure or the, you know, the right and wrong structure through which things are argued in
0: social media and the news is unhelpful. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about Savile, which is the most recent film that you've made and is everywhere Um, on Netflix. What, What were you hoping to do by telling that story, which is important and horrific, but in different ways, pretty well trodden? That's a really good question. And
1: I, uh, I ummed and ard about doing, doing Savile, as Netflix put it. But the reason that I wanted to make the film is, yes, it is, it is well trodden. But I also think that it's, an well, uh, it is obviously an extraordinarily important uh, story in our history. So I suppose it's significance in terms of how it was the uh, a watershed moment in, you know, British culture in terms of our attitudes towards sort of sex abuse, towards um, celebrity, towards safeguarding, you know, it was the precursor to Me Too in this country. It was the beginning of a sort of, it, it was the sort of beginning of many of the culture wars we're living through now in terms of kind of, um uh attitudes towards sexual assault and consent and uh gender. So Its significance couldn't be understated. I, I felt that um well, the reason I wanted to make it is I think that there's quite a lot of myths that have grown up around the Savile story. And I was interested in needling some of those myths. And I think that they I think one of the ways we as a culture, as a nation, have dealt with it was is to make him pure evil. Uh, Because it's so horrific what happened. It's so unbelievable. It's so unthinkable that a man who was in the public eye and who was, you know, one of our most loved and um, respected celebrities for 60 years was also a prolific paedophile. That is almost unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't write a screenplay that would kind of feel realistic if that were the case. And I think that we have, as a society, found a way of coping with that by demonising him to the extent that he is actually the devil. And I don't think that, that was is a helpful way of trying to understand how it happens. So I think there has been a lot, um, the, like you say, it's well-trodden. I think there has been important films made that have told victim, the victim stories and, and have heard victim experiences. And that has been a necessary part of our sort of healing and learning process uh, um, as a culture with Savile. But I didn't feel that there had been a film that had comprehensively and emotionally and experientially asked Britain to understand how this had happened. I think we understood it journalistically. Oh, it was because he was so powerful. It was because there were no safeguarding in hospitals. It was because um, we didn't understand sexual assault. It was because, you know, we didn't understand what paedophile was. You know, there are lots of intellectual answers that are given but do we really understand what that means emotionally as a society and the role that we all played in a kind of terrible kind of complicity, I suppose. And so the reason why I wanted to make the film was because um, we, very early on, I, I was like, the only way to do this is to sort of grapple with Savile himself which was something that hadn't been done because there was a sort of understanding an understandable feeling from the BBC and from other broadcasters that he had been given you know he already we were ashamed of how much oxygen and airtime we had given him over decades what we mustn't do now is put him back on television you know so all of the archive footage of um Jimmy Savile had been kind of embargoed and um basically you couldn't it, it was kept under lock and key. There was a sort of alarm system that went off at the BBC if anyone inquired for a Top of the Pops that had Jimmy Savile presenting it. I thought that in itself was interesting because I thought that was both understandable because of course we don't want to traumatise victims by putting Jimmy Savile on television all the time. And I've, But I also thought it was about shame. I also thought it was about the sense of shame that we have. And I thought that it was probably time, 10 years on, to explore that shame and to have a look at that footage. And it took a long time, took six months, but we persuaded the BBC and then other broadcasters that we would do it responsibly and that we would dig out this footage and look at who he had been and what the relationship had been with us as a society and us as individuals. And from that, we then started finding people who were in the footage, you know, people who had been friends with him or had been uh, performing alongside him, or had, or who had uh, produced him, and we, uh, and I think in doing that, in finding this kind of archive footage was sort of evidence of something that had been perhaps forgotten um, about the kind of society that we were and the kind of conditions in which he operated that meant that he was able to operate, and I think that that's why the film was worth making because it isn't about. What he did, it's not a victim testimony film, um, uh, although there is an incredibly important piece of testimony in there from one of his many, many victims. It's a film that asks, how did this happen? And how did this happen and what role did we all play? Um, and what role did our culture and our values and our society that's misogynistic, fame-obsessed, um, ignores Ignores what children say is... Um, uh what role did we all play in in allowing this inadvertently uh to happen and and i think that's it was so it was more of a sort of myth busting mm. exercise and also a challenge to myself to go can we make you know I I I most of my films apart from the one that you mentioned where I filmed someone that I sort of found rather unlikable, most of my films about people that are admirable or I respect or admire in some way and obviously Jimmy Savile can't fall into that category but I actually thought well let's take a look at him though mm. and I and and I thought that taking that I mean it sounds ridiculous to take a compassionate stance This politically dangerous it was a high wire act I think to make a film and it was the film that gave me most nightmares um oh my god what am I doing I'm making a film about a you know a, a prolific paedophile um, but actually, one of the things that I think was interesting in the process was I talked to I was deeply aware that um that the film wasn't a victim testimony film, and that that was perhaps problematic in itself or not problematic because I knew that was the right way to do it for me, but I wanted to make sure that I was hearing from people who had been survivors of sexual abuse either from South Wolf himself or others, and so I linked with lots of people. Um, through an organisation, actually, that uh, helped people who are making films kind of learn about other people's experiences. And I spoke to lots of survivors of sexual um, abuse about what I was doing and about its purpose. And one of the things that came out of those discussions was the sense that actually the demonization of Savile, the posthumous demonization of him as literally the devil, Was unhelpful because actually, those people know that their perpetrators didn't appear to the world as monsters, that they didn't appear to them as monsters, and that that complicated behavior that perpetrators have, which is to be likable, to be charming, and actually to be both things, to be someone who is both capable of achieving great things, which, like, I know it's, we're not allowed to say this, but weirdly, he did. complicates the experiences for survivors and as actually how perpetrators are enabled. And so I thought if we ignore the fact that this guy was charismatic and likeable and respected and how he managed to be that, then we're ignoring how this happened. And and those survivors kind of gave me permission Mm -hmm. to uh, tonally address Savile in a way that wasn't using creepy music, Uh, uses warm music at times. It shows him being likeable. And, and and publicly, people haven't said that, but privately, people have said, I smiled at the general fix-it section. W- w- it's almost like a heresy to say, yeah. oh, I found him quite charismatic. But I don't think it should be. That's the point, right? That's the we point. Did. We did, and we do. And, if, and it's not like when Savile was slain and found out, child abuse ended. <laughs> you know. So the idea that we, he became a kind of totem and once we destroyed him, we, oh, well, the uh, evils are cured. Well, Well, they're obviously not. And so... Hiding from the relationship that we actually had with him, I felt was dishonest. And in my sort of desperate search for authenticity and sort of some kind of honesty with the films, uh, I felt that was like critically important and and had arguments throughout with Netflix who wanted a more monsterizing version of Savile because they knew that this was a risky, I think... It was a shorthand. Well, let's just make him a monster. Put the scary music on. Why, why does this feel like a biopic? Mm-hmm. You're making a biopic of Jimmy Savile, Robin.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, I, 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 me and the editor and the team that I was making it with were convinced that that was the only honest way
0: to deal with this subject matter. I want to ask about that moment when the film went out into the public because, you know, you it is so clear that one of the things you're doing with your films this is my interpretation is a deliberate moral complexifying of saying the world is not black and white we are not black and white and our tendency to want to locate evil outside of ourselves So i would have known or i know exactly what i think about pain and death and love and loss without feeling the weight of how difficult some of these things are it is is we, we are more fully human when we allow the the um that black and white thinking particularly about other people to fall away, even though it can be scary. Um, and you made this film that was at least partly in that thread, although not saying that Jimmy, Jimmy Savile was anything but heinous child abuser. Um, when you put that out on Netflix, which is this global audience, which, as we know, does have... is, is not a publicly funded broadcaster, does not have quite the same heritage of... Um, Depth of kind of ethical rigour and their key metric is how many clicks we can get. Yeah, Um, You put out a complex film on a very provocative subject on a slightly less complex platform. What was the experience of then being the public face of that? Were you braced for a lot of kickback? Did you worry about being cancelled? Like, how did you navigate that time? Um, Yeah, I was definitely more terrified
1: Uh, Apprehensive about this film than any other party because, yeah, like you say, Netflix is a um, global channel which is who are very, very good at marketing. I think there's good things about that actually because it means documentaries get seen. Um, But they, how did I feel? I uh, was incredibly apprehensive and actually. Found it. I found that I couldn't talk publicly about the film. I asked, I can't talk publicly about this until an audience has received it. Because I think I just needed to know that the High Wire Act had been received in the way that it was intended and I, and I didn't know whether it would be. Um, and so I expected more kickback actually than, than we got. And I think uh, I expected to be cancelled. I mean, cancelled, I mean, I'm not... <laughs>
0: have some, some career
1: repercussions. I, 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 <laughs> I don't think I've got public enough profile to even be cancelled. No one would notice. But I, um, I think I uh, worried about it being embargo. I, I worried that people would sort of refuse to watch it and would make a statement about refusing to watch it because I had experienced just how toxic the name Jimmy Savile is and the idea that I was making a film that kind of put him centre stage, you know.
0: was profiting of pain or something. That was the fear that people would say.
1: People, yes, that we were exploiting uh, pain, that we were dragging up um, story, a, a painful story for the purpose of entertainment. I suppose it was that. It was that um, there was, uh, the film deliberately was not a worthy, hand-wringy, uh, testament film you know a sort of um for the fallen Mm. it it was it was a compelling watchable piece which used a lot of one of the reasons why it's watchable is that Jimmy Savile is front and center that's that's a complex moral position and um but I think, so I was incredibly nervous because, because there were no guarantees about how that's going to be received. I mean, I knew I knew that I had sat with it and was comfortable with it. I knew that I had fought against Netflix, actually, on quite a lot of issues to because I knew what was coming for us. And I knew that we had to be defended and the only way we could, the only way the film could be defended, and it's not defended on every point. I think there's there's two bits in it that I would have changed anyway that's a small point but I, I felt like it had to have purpose I felt like it had to have purpose and I think that it does have purpose and that in the end um actually my worst fears weren't founded there, there was of course some criticism there was criticism that uh, I think I think the harshest one was that the film won't help anyone who has suffered from um sexual abuse it won't help anyone who's being sexually abused I, I, I take issue with that. I mean, I take issue with it because I, people wrote to me who had been sexually abused and, you know, set in, in one case, a man said that he watched the film. This this is someone who's outside of the UK who obviously in the UK, we all know the story. So I think that outside of the UK, it kind of was a new story for people. And someone outside the UK said this was the first time that he realised that he needed to talk to his wife about what had happened to him as a child. So I, So I disagree, even if it's one person, right? And that's just the person that wrote to me. I disagree with the fact that it doesn't help people who have gone through those experiences, and also maybe it helps people who haven't gone through those experiences understand more about those experiences. Maybe that wasn't the purpose was to, do, do you know what I mean yeah. so I think that's quite a high a high bar to put on a film that it must do this one thing yeah. um so we did get a little bit of criticism, but actually mostly it was it was well received and watched and accepted as something that was, um, that had purpose in it. But uh, the, sorry, the, to answer your question, I, uh, practically felt like I had to sort of go into hiding for a, a few days. I mean, not that anyone recognized me, but you know, I felt quite, um, I felt like we had done, we had walked a moral tightrope and that, um, I just hoped that its intention was going to be received in the way that it was intended. Rowan,
0: then, thank you so um, much for speaking to me on The Sacred. It really made me laugh at Rowan's description of growing up the child of kind of revolutionary socialists in Plymouth and being asked if her mother was a woman's liber because she had short hair and no perm. Um, I really remember the period where my mum and all the other mums at school had uh, had a perm i there 's so much that will stay with me in, from this conversation about what documentary is and this episode 's slightly different in that i 'm not talking particularly to someone who sits on one side or another of the various different divides but i 'm really trying to dig into the role documentary in particular and storytelling in general play in how we see other people and how we understand the world and understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And I really do, I really have been awoken to this um, particular genre as something that doesn't feel like homework, as we talked about that, um, that you know, Roan wanting to make uh, documentaries that are more like cupcakes than kale, but not like cupcakes because they are actually also... Good for you. And it got me thinking that sometimes my media consumption swings between those two poles. that I feel I should kind of look clear eyed at the state of the world. And I should listen to The Economist podcast and understand climate modeling and kind of not shirk my citizens' responsibilities to understand the world, but I do it because I should. And then that can be very overwhelming, actually, and gives you a particular view of what the world is like right now, framed because of the framing that news-led media works from. And then I escape from that into um, my beloved Golden Age detective novels or Georgette Hayer, or something really kind of mindless on Netflix and sort of go back and forth between the kale and cupcakes. Although, to be clear, I really do like kale a lot. Um and I find cupcakes too sweet. What's the equivalent for me between um, you know, Ben and Jerry's and um low-fat cottage cheese, maybe would be my personal framing. Um I, I was left with the thought that really great documentaries, like actually all really great art a brilliant novel or a play, maybe music, but I'm interested in how that is slightly different. Definitely poetry helps me hold that midpoint between really paying attention to the world as it is and to other people's lives as they are, and turning my attention outward away from the comfort and safety of just a sort of numbing that the worst entertainment, I think, does for me but it does it in a container that somehow feels also enriching and life-giving and deepening um, and therefore kind of tolerable <laughs> longer term. Um, it makes me feel more fully alive. Uh, I think there was a lot in there about the ethics of what great storytellers do. And I really am fascinated by this idea that the film will fight you if you basically try and mischaracterize someone. And that the the job of a good documentary maker and I guess a good journalist is to tell the truth as clearly and as carefully as you can um, with so much material, you have to be very selective and discriminating in the best way. But that there is a, there is a logic that an authenticity. There is such a thing as truth in storytelling that um, I really like the way Rowan seems to be paying close attention to. Yeah. I would recommend getting hold of Simon's Choice if you can, although it's it's quite tricky, it's not publicly available now, but I think it's an incredible thing to have made a film about an issue that complex complex that really didn't just please one side or the other, that really revealed the pain and complexity of this issue, and in so doing, I think, so many issues, that we really do want it to be simpler than it is, we do really want it to be more black and white than it is, no matter what side we come from. Um... And the reason these neuralgic issues are so enduring is that they are not simple or easy to resolve. And uh, finally on Savile, again, I'd really recommend you watch it. I did not want to at all for aforementioned reasons, but it is not a, as she she put it, um, for the fallen. It's not a for the fallen film. It's very clever. And actually the first part is quite enjoyable to watch in a way that's quite discomforting, because you remember that Savile was really enjoyable to watch. He was really beloved. He was funny. He was silly. Um, he was a national treasure. And uh, the complexity there and the care with which they did treat the victims, survivors, um, is really very impressive and was not was not as gruelling as I was expecting whilst still being incredibly effective. In the point it was trying to make that's all from me my reflections from this episode you have been listening to the sacred with me elizabeth oldfield and my guest was rowan deacon our production team are daniel turner and lizzie harvey our music is by luke stanley with vocals by lizzie harvey and the sacred is a project of the think tank theos Please do spread the words to friends and followers. And I really would love you to get in touch either by leaving us a little review or more fulsomely, if you're anything like me and you have a tendency to carry on a conversation in your head with the guest, I'd love to hear some of that. I'm just nosy to know about it. And I have a place to put mine, which is a privilege. But I'm frankly more interested in your thoughts. So you can find an email and all of our social media channels in the show notes. Until next time.